I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. So this is our episode about solitude and sociability in the age of COVID-19. We took a poll, or rather the the students who know how to make a poll on Twitter, which I don't, uh, took a poll asking our listeners who, which of the two of us was the most sociable. Who do you think won? I did in a landslide. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand where people get this idea that I am not friendly or sociable. That's I. I got drunk a lot with people in college. I don't see why I don't get any credit for that. You were the editor of the school paper. You're kind of assuming those things are opposed, which they're really not, Whitney. But at any rate, 75% of our listeners think I'm more sociable. It is an outrage. However, we're both lucky that the poll did not include our guest for the second half of the show, Candace Bushnell, because she would have killed us. Candace's Sex in the City column and book were the basis for the famed HBO series of the same name, and she's going to talk to us about what New York social life looks like or if it even exists at all in the age of COVID-19. But first, we're going to talk to David Means about a topic that is clearly near and dear to your heart wit, solitude. Apparently it is now. Well, these days you have plenty of company because everyone is learning about solitude during the pandemic. We're going to talk to David about that and about the role solitude plays in his work and in American art generally. David Means is the author of Assorted Fire Events, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Fiction and was nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award. The Secret Goldfish and The Spot, which was selected as a 2010 notable book by the New York Times. He's also the winner of an O. Henry Prize. 
His novel Histopia was longlisted for the Man Booker, and his stories have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, and Best American Short Stories. He's here to talk to us about his excellent story collection, Instructions for a Funeral, which just came out in paperback. David, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? It's a thrill to get to talk to you. I've been a fan of your work for a very long time. Uh, I would always get excited when there was a new David Means story in Harper's. For, I associate with that magazine particularly. But uh, Instructions for a Funeral opens with an epigraph from William Carlos Williams, which mentions, quote, that eternal moment in which we alone live, unquote. I assume that there that's there because that solitary moment is something you try to access or express in your work. Yeah, I think it's you know I I, I don't want to hedge my bets here and say it's 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 a hard thing to talk about. Um, but but absolutely, I think I tend to go out there and the stories that I find when I'm imagining things are about isolated people in in certain predicaments, you know, and uh, they're usually alone somewhere or with another person and alone, or alone with their own emotional turmoil. The best company, right? (laughs) Exactly. So I think it's not just stay-at-home orders that are making us think about solitude and isolation during the pandemic. I mean, William Carlos Williams was a doctor, and as a doctor, he also wrote really well about and had firsthand knowledge of death. And given that more than, at this point, you know, 61,000 people have died from COVID-19 in the United States, I think people are thinking about death and the solitude of death more than usual. You know, I, I was thinking quarantine is a different kind of solitude. It's not the same as the kind of solitude that you, you go out and seek and find, and then you're, you're, you're going to sort of counterpoint that solitude with going out to dinner, or maybe in a week you're going to have it a wedding or something. This is a totally different kind of solitude that we're in right now. You know, with all the death around us, I mean, I live sort of in one of the red hot centers here, not too far from New York. Um, it, I I like to think that it's reminding us of death in a good way and, and reminding us that we have a narrative, that we're living a story that's going to end. And, you know, as soon as you know that, as soon as you're aware that your life is going to end, you start to think of your life in narrative terms. What have I done? What have, who have I talked to? Who haven't I talked to? And then you start to think, um, how long am I going to live? Am I going to live hopefully a long time? But, you know, this is sort of reawakening some internal narrative that we all have. You know, people live their entire lives without being alive. And, and death isn't a thing. It's, it's a force that, that reminds us how to be alive. Well, I mean, you talk about this in the very beginning of Instructions for a Funeral, uh, where you talk about that, the void of eternity, you know, and it sort of seems to, to me like in, in that essay, Confessions, that opens the book, you're talking about like the need to sort of push back against that is one of the reasons that you write stories in the first, or at least an awareness of that void that awaits all of us is a reason that you want to write stories in the first place. Could you talk a little bit about that? You're, you're writing a story, you're trying to lay claim to a narrative, you're trying to um, make something that's going to obviously last maybe, and I think I say in that little essay, maybe it'll last 100 years, maybe a week, whatever. There has to be this sense when you're writing a story that you're trying to catch something that can't, that if you don't catch it, it won't be caught. If you don't tell the story, it'll disapp- disappear into the void where all the other stories go that aren't told. So you, for me, at least personally, I feel like I have to feel this certain feeling of desperation that I got to I got to capture that story. Um, And if I don't do it, it's never going to get told. But and that ties in with the um, 
the awareness of, you know, the fact that all stories terminate, all stories end. I think um, what you were saying before about being alive and this reminding us of death, I was thinking about an essay that Jamaica Kincaid published on the Paris Review Daily yesterday. I just want to read a little snippet of it, Um, because what you said reminded me so strongly of the line that struck me the most as I read it. Um, I am alive in the time of the dead, the time of the dead being the time in which to be alive is a form of being dead. We are dead right now, for we cannot be all our ways that are ways of being alive that is familiar. And this is, I mean, sort of her pandemic. This is her pandemic take. And I was like, oh, God. Wow. (laughs) And then, you know, I went from that to reading. And then I was reading your work and I was like, whoa. Um, And yeah, I mean, that that felt so much... um, that like being alone with your being alone with your own emotions and speaking of the dead, you know, we were also, of course, uh, when we research, I guess we like to look at their Instagram accounts and yours tells me that you've been hanging out at a cemetery and that it is the cemetery with Edward Hopper's grave. And he is, of course, almost synonymous with that vein of American art that contemplates solitude and aloneness. And it's not just in, you know, everyone knows Nighthawks, but it's not just in that painting. It's really in, I think, everything he did. And I'm assuming you're a Hopper fan. I am. I am. Yeah, I go up to the cemetery. I, I, one thing I wanted to add, I have my next door neighbor right not too far from me right now, you know, just maybe 50 yards away is a nurse. He's a nurse at the emergency room at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in the city. So he goes in and out and deals with this incredible trauma and I talk to him a little bit but I I hike up to this Oak Hill cemetery that's not too far from my house and Edward Hopper's buried there Carson McCullers is there um C. Wright Mills is there and you know when I'm up there there's a really nice little spot it's sort of a little memorial to uh Civil War soldiers I guess and I just sit there with a book and no one's up there no one wants to be near a cemetery. It's actually right above. It's on this beautiful hill that looks over the Hudson. And it's right above the hospital. So down below is the hospital where all, all the ambulances are coming in and out. And, you know, when I go up there, I, I walk and think. And I was thinking how, like, visiting the dead is not a morbid thing. You know, thinking about the dead is not a, it's not a morbid thing. It's not a bad thing. And when I go up there, I finally feel like myself, you know, I haven't felt like myself much, you know? You know what I mean? That feeling when you go out and you're, you're like somewhere away from home and you put on a certain coat and you put on a certain hat or whatever and you feel like you're actually an interesting person or something. And when I'm up there, when I'm up there, I feel like, a, I feel like, okay, I'm okay, you know? They're kind of like, I was thinking they're kind of like the internet, the early um, manifestation of, of sort of Facebook or something, you know, they're demarking lives that were lived. And the technology of the age was stones and chisels and like engraving stones. That was it. Um, and it's like, what are we going to, I began thinking like, what are we going to do in the future, you know, to demark the, the loss of another person? It's going to start to seem really archaic to put a stone into the ground. All right, speaking of artists who are interested in solitude, like you, you have this amazing story in your collection that posits this connection between Raymond Carver and Kurt Cobain, uh, who are, I associate with solitude and loneliness. And I wonder if you could just like read us the opening part to that piece, which I liked. Sure. Carver and Cobain. 
A few years ago, I drafted two linked stories, one about Kurt Cobain and the other about Raymond Carver. Both grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Both had fathers who worked at a sawmill. Both were, in one way or another, working-class kids. There was another overlap that I struggled to show, but which was much deeper and had to do with the fact that both struggled with addiction, Carver with drinking, Cobain with heroin. Cobain in a hotel room that seemed straight out of one of, Ray of Raymond Carver's stories, at least in theory, the details being somewhat fuzzy. The stories sat in a folder and waited for a revision, and I vowed to go back to them together, united. I met Carver one time when he was giving a reading for Penn on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I told him how much his work meant to me, and he thanked me and gave me a nod and a sidelong look. He was smoking, I think, and he took the cigarette out of his mouth and tapped it into the ashtray and then looked past me over my shoulder, and I moved to the side and let the next admirer step up. Cobain was around 19 when that moment transpired. That must have been sometime around 1986. I imagine Cobain, lonely in a good way, with the smell of pine sap in the air, listening to records and making sketches in his sketchbook, unaware that he and his mother were living inside a Carver story. Perhaps that's a stretch. I would have explained to Carver, if I could have, that when I bought the book of stories, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, I began to read and was stunned to recognize the landscape, to see that world I knew could exist in the world of fiction. In Michigan, my neighbor, Mr. Bycroft, now dead, had worked at a, the paper mill, the Bryant Mill, just down the hill to the east of my house. He was an electrician in the mill, and he came home in overalls, name patch, tool belt, black lunch pail, the works, and drank by himself on the front porch of his house. And in the night, usually late, from my window, I heard him singing to himself, sing-song slurred chants, and then, on some occasions, he gave out a kind of howl, or began shouting at his wife, and I heard then, but didn't know I was hearing, something that I would hear years later in Cobain's voice, somewhere around the edge of his singing, pushing as hard as he could to the very edge of a scream, yet still, somehow, for me at least, stark and brutally clear and well wrought. Oh, thank you very much. Sure. That story and your, your post about Hopper, you know, made me think about the role that solitude's played in American art generally. Um, I thought of Grant Wood or Ansel Adams, Georgia O'Keeffe. You know, and in writing there's Thoreau or Annie Dillard or Ralph Ellison, because I, I think of Invisible Man as kind of a book about solitude. And I was trying to think of what connected these people. And in the end... It came down to something about space, like being from the West or Midwest and understanding unoccupied space. Uh, you're from Michigan. Do you do you buy my theory? I do. I do. I mean, I remember sitting in the backyard in a lawn chair, staring up at the sky and feeling like I was in the very center of this immense country. And of course, I wasn't, but I felt that way. And I feel that way when I'm out West, too, that I'm in the middle of something really big. Um, I think it has to do a little bit with this um, sense of isolation that you get in the, in, in, in the United States, that you're part of some destiny. It probably ties in with, um, you know, the, 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 the uh, Constitution or something with it. You're part of this vast experiment that's going on. 
And, um, you know, I feel like when you're alone in America, you're alone in a different way. I'm not sure if it's really true, but I feel like you are because you're alone with a certain history. You're alone with Abraham Lincoln and Rosa Parks. And, you know, uh, I just have this sense that being alone here in this vast continent is a little bit different than being alone, say, in Italy or on the southern shore of Spain or something. Sugi, I wonder, I was going to ask you, you know, you grew up on the East Coast, but now you live in Minneapolis, which is a great city, but I consider Minnesota like one of the loneliest states in America for some Why reason. Why is that? I don't know. It seems really scary and cold up there. I don't know. It just, uh, but I wonder, do you feel like differently living in the Midwest as opposed to like the East Coast? Yes, I think. Um, well, I've lived in a few different places in the Midwest. I've lived in Ann Arbor and I've lived in Iowa City. And I feel like all of those places had really different cultures. Here, there is, I mean, I live in the Twin Cities, and I do feel like in certain parts of the Twin Cities, it's like, for example, it seems like it's, of course, very easy for us to socially distance. Um, we already had some of the habits, you know, we were in the winter, we go, we go inside and we, we huddle sometimes alone and we are um, reserved. I mean, or I'm not reserved, but sort of the Scandinavian uh, history or all of that sort of one of the predominant characters of Minnesota is, seems to be one of a kind of reserve and solitude and self-sufficiency, which in some ways I actually also associate with, um, writers of new England. But of course, like when you think about things like, you know, Walden, like Walden, you know, Oh, I'm alone or whatever, but like also he went to his mom's house and did his laundry. So (laughs) (laughs) new England was like the original Midwest, you know, before, before, (laughs) you know, white people at least were living in the Midwest, you know? Well, I, th- I think it has to do sort of with what you said, The you know, the original Midwest was the East, um, was Robert Frost territory. It, it kind of has to do with the pioneer thing and um, the stoic spirit that you have to have to survive the long winters. I think the Midwest still has a lot of that. It's only a generation or two away that, they, that um, a lot of people were living in log cabins and struggling to exist. Sure. I think of, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder or something like that, right? Like my original notions of Minnesota are from that book. And of course, I don't know, I wonder about like how much this notion of like, I am the American loner is just also, I don't know, an erasure of other communities. Obviously they were here, like at the University of Minnesota, there's a lot of discussion about like, we're on, we're on native lands, of course, like we're a land grant university. And so the way that that I don't know. I think that there's also something there about like the American myth of the loner kind of trampling on that history as well. And and the, and it was a, 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 an aloneness that comes out of fear, fear of the other. Weather does matter, though, because I, I when we drive to Colorado in the winter uh, and and there is uh, we stop like midway through Kansas, you know, uh, around Goodland. Uh, and, and in the winter, the, the wind is always going 50 miles an hour. And it does not stop. Uh, you have a you have a, a story that the tree line Kansas 1934 in the collection. I wondered if you chose Kansas for that kind of isolation of setting, or why you decided to set the story there. I think I just picked a place that I knew would be um, isolated, but um, Kansas seemed to me like the the place, you know, where where it's it's not too far west, it's not too far east, it's just kind of right there. So we're talking about these like vast stretches of space, the Midwest. What about urban solitude and homelessness? You were, um, you're the last story in this collection, which is two ruminations on a homeless brother was first published in the New Yorker. And at the time you said, 
Um, and I'm quoting you here, America turns its back on the mentally ill. It likes to think it doesn't, but it does. I mean, literally, we turn away, look away, because someone who is struggling brings us the news that we too are incredibly frail. And naturally, all of us in one way or another fear our fragility. Could you talk a little bit about the genesis of that story? Yeah, well, that story, I have um, I have a family member right now who's on the, you know, he he has public housing now. He has an apartment, but he's still eating in soup kitchens in uh, East New York. I wrote that partially for him. Um, and also just, I have another family member who's even closer to me, um, who would be, uh, homeless if it were not for a lot of family care and, and tending. I just feel that, you know, we do turn away from it. We turn away from mentally ill mental illness. And, and even like, I, I think the example I would give is um, somebody who's physically disabled, chal- um, challenging you to rethink the way you think about your body. Um, when I have a friend who lives in the, the UK, um, she has cerebral palsy. When I'm with her, I, I feel this challenge and new sense of my body and new sense of who I am. What is, uh, you know, the quality of your sense of people's solitude in the you said you were at the beginning of the interview that you're sort of you guys are sort of you're in the red hot the red hot center of this pandemic i mean you know just in a just in a physical sense you know like what is that solitude like it's it's kind of amazing because in general um my daughter lives in brooklyn in general everybody is sort of um following the rules and sticking with the protocol. And it's sort of uplifting to see that in general, society is actually becoming a society and take, and trying to take care of each other. But in Michigan, where there's protests at the, at the state house and gun-toting people running around, um, I, I feel like it's just that they're not here where we are right now yet. Um, when their aunt and, aunt and uncles are dying, when their neighbors are dying, or when the sirens are going up and down the street, they may um, protest uh, less, although that might be completely wishful thinking on my part. I don't know about you, Sugi, but I, I one thing that I have noticed during the pandemic, because I jog every day, and so especially like two weeks ago before, when people really weren't coming out, what I noticed w- were that the only people out were the homeless in Kansas City, and there are a lot of them. And like my awareness of them was increased and like their because they and their solitude and the realization that I don't see them, just like David was talking about, um, that when other people are around, I erase the homeless people from my visual field. I don't think about them. Right. And when I was jogging alone in the pandemic and I saw them alone out there, I realized like, oh, they're, they're here all the time. They're just that I've, everyone else has been removed. Well, it's, I know that in some places there's been discussion. I feel like maybe it was the Bay Area where I was seeing this, right? There was a parking lot where they had divided the lot into spots for um, people who were homeless to sleep. And each one was like, uh, you know, I don't know, half a parking space or something. And then paired with this story was information about how many empty hotel rooms there were. And so there's this sort of physical structure of, fake isolation. And then there's all this actual isolation, like this privileged isolation, which isn't available to that population at all. And so instead, they're essentially being asked to mime it. 
And, you know, I work with incarcerated writers, and so I've also been following what's been going on with incarcerated populations, where um, so much of what's punitive is understood to be isolation. And now I think also, like, space there has become a privilege. I saw this totally terrible picture um, from Al Jazeera of prisoners in, in El Salvador, and they are back to back to back to back. It's like thousands of men. Um, and so, yeah, I think these are the populations that perhaps normally we're we're erasing their actual presence. It's it's weird because like not looking, not seeing is is a privileged position. And um the right the to and this might sound grand. I don't mean it to sound this way, but the the art the, the job of the artist is to look. Um to to really look as closely as possible. In a weird way, it's like you said, we're we're seeing things that we often don't look at because they're the um something's been peeled away, uh, exposed. I think with New York too, like um, just the sudden like um, f- image of Times Square with nobody in it, but like two people. One person is pushing a, a shopping cart of um, plastic bags and has backpacks, knapsacks and backpacks on their back and is hobbling along. Another person is, you know, further off in the distance. It, it, it's revealing something to us. There is a zombie element to what's going on. It, it, it's really strange. So we're, not, we're clearly not going to get to all forms of American solitude in this interview, uh, but uh, I thought of other forms. You know, there's the solitude caused by gender inequity or violence. You know, I think of Alice Monroe or Toni Morrison. There's a solitude caused by racism. You know, Colson Whitehead's work seems to be so often about that kind of solitude or, or Gloria Anzaldúa. There's also class and the solitude of class. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, it, again, it's sort of like the unseen turning away from the homeless. Class in America is the unspoken. It, it's it's just not supposed to be talked about. Or if it is, it, it's talked about in academic terms. When I see a movie, you know, and they live in a really beautiful house, it's a Christmas movie and everybody's happy and there's lots of stuff. And be, I'm always like, what? What does this? What did they? What what did they do to make their money? And I think, <laughs> you know, it's it's a very um, it's something that we turn away from. I wondered if you could talk about that, the solitude of class, and 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 may, maybe read to us from the story Fist Fight, Sacramento, August nineteen fifty to close out. Yeah, in this story we have um, this um, young kid who is a ranch, you know, his, um, works on a ranch and, um, he's fist fighting with a, a wealthy kid in town. Um, and, um, the story I really see as a, a, a love story and a story not so much about male violence. Um, although that it has a lot of male violence in it, but how do you transform violence into something, um, more later? Um, so in this scene, the, the fight is beginning. It wasn't enough, the heir said, to simply fight over the Oki comment. It wasn't enough to have one more sacramental fist fight between a wealthy town boy and a ranch boy. The heir begged for deeper significance. Then someone said, Kick that fucking silver spoon out of his teeth, Bagheera. And on Sutter's side, someone said, Knock the clodhopper's jaw off. Clean his yokel clock. While the girls remained silent, there were three or four of them, and pitted the elegant beauty of Sutter's dimples and clean jaw against the rough, blunt complexity of Bagheera's 
face. With the exception of a young woman named Sarah Breland, who worked the fountain at the Five and Dime store in town and had talked with Big Air once or twice, setting a milkshake in front of him, seeing in his eyes the sophisticated kindness that came from her toil. Knowing, too, talking to him, he spoke carefully, his words barely audible in the din of the store, the cheap of canaries in the pet section, the popcorn machine popping, that he understood a certain type of quiet that came from living on the margins, not only of life, but of the town itself. For she lived in a house not far from his ranch, tending her sisters while her mother went to Sutter's home and to clean. She had gone a number of times to Sutter's house to stand with her mother and watch as she worked the iron press, the starchy steam puffing as she pushed the lever down and made tight creases while her nimble fingers lifted and readjusted. Sarah caught Bagheera's eyes, eye as it swayed over Sutter's shoulder and gave him a slight smile and a nod as if to indicate that a secret might pass between them. Years later, she'd remember the way he had nodded back at her once, quickly. She'd remember the taste of dust in the air and the scent of juniper. She'd see the significance, the hugeness of that single glance and the luck of having arrived at the tavern, hearing the shouts out back, and for some reason, she liked to think it was her deep sense of pity, of wanting to be there to care for those who were beaten, walking around to watch. She liked to think she had been looking for Bagheera, searching him out, but of course that wasn't true. He was just one more ranch boy in a line of many. David, thank you so much. It's been great to have you with us. Thank you. We want to remind our listeners to go out and pick up instructions for a funeral. And now we're excited to welcome Candace Bushnell. Interestingly enough, Candace and I, well, I mean, I she wrote for the New York Observer. I kind of was on staff at the New York Observer during the same period back in the spring of 1996. So you guys know each other from way back then. Uh, that would be... Not really. <laughs> what did you write? I, I was a fact checker. Uh, I had, and, uh, and then I ended up writing a few pieces for the paper, one of which was about like, how Rudy Giuliani was was making city blocks look worse than they actually really uh, were to in order to film gritty '70s era movies in on them. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I have to say that office was uh, the worst place to work. Did you ever go in there? I always remember oh, seeing. Yeah. Oh, okay. I I did. I would go in there and I would like run up the stairs past those two women who were always like. And then Arthur Carter's office, which was like huge. This was in this townhouse. And you'd think like, why is he so freaking rich? And I'm making a dollar a word. It was a very weird. And the townhouse was weird and rickety. The townhouse was weird. And, and, you know, Kaplan would be in his office, like, and wouldn't come out. And there, it was like, you did not want to go to the bathroom there. (laughs) It was all guys, and these guys, they hazed everybody. Uh, well, since those days, you are and have become a critically acclaimed best-selling author of 10 books, including Is There Still Sex in the City? Sex in the City, 
Summer and the City, The Carrie Diaries, and Lipstick Jungle. Sex and the City, published in 1996, was the basis for the uh, hit HBO series, as everybody knows, in two blockbuster movie sequels. Lipstick Jungle and The Carrie Diaries both became TV series. Is There Still Sex in the City is currently in development for TV, and Bushnell's new book, Rules for Being a Girl, is out now. Uh, Candace, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's like, there's so many, like, Sex in the City books. It's like, ay, 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 what the heck? Well, um, yeah, I, of course, am, like, every woman who lived in New York as a single woman, I'm a longtime fan, and so it's really a treat to have you here. When we said you were going to be on the show, several of our readers wrote in or talked to me and said they really wanted to know what Carrie Bradshaw would do during quarantine, and so I wonder what you can tell us about how she would handle it. Here's the reality. I don't know what Carrie Bradshaw would do during quarantine. Um, you know, I know what Can- Candace Bushnell would do. But, um, you know, what's interesting is there's so many of these parody things on Instagram and online. And I see, like, every day I see somebody is writing, you know, what would Carrie Bradshaw be doing in quarantine? And, of course, they're all written by 20-somethings. It's like... Guys, Carrie Bradshaw is in her mid-50s, at least, okay? She's probably trying to figure out how to Zoom. Well, you figured it out. I mean, here we are. You've got, you've got the, some sort of planet behind you, and uh, clearly, but you're in New York, I assume, right now, that, that planet is in New York? No, I'm in Sag Harbor. Oh, okay. Is that the house that you bought at, and that you write about in Is There Still Sex in the City? Um, and that you sort of you go out to move there to be near your friends? Yes, it is. You divide your time between Sag Harbor and the city. Is that right? Or I do. I do. I, I like to be in one place or the other for like 10 days because I go in for certain things. And then, you know, there are other times when, you know, I'll just be here and you know, you don't have to dress up. I mean, there's a certain amount of pressure being in the city because you're always having to go out and present yourself to the world in some way. I remember that. Yeah, I can't imagine maintaining my current sweatpants aesthetic uh, in New York City, which is, of course, I think the place that's most strongly associated with with you and with your work because of Sex and the City and all of the books that have followed and the TV show and the movies, just it's integral to so many of your stories. And in, in your work, it's often like a character in itself. And when I lived in New York, I lived in New York between 2006 and 2009. I lived in a tiny place with two roommates in Morningside Heights. But I, you know, and I was paying kind of through the nose for this to live in a basement. And I justified it to myself that, you know, oh, I got to go out and experience this great, you know, one of the best cities in the world. And now that's not possible. So what do you think it's like for New Yorkers to be for New Yorkers to be quarantined to that very particular structure of the city with those comparatively small and expensive living spaces? You know, you're remembering your days of earning a, a, a dollar. Or was it a dollar a word at the, at the Observer and away from right? People are locked away from what New York is known best for its large, vibrant communal spaces and social life. I, th- you know, I haven't been in the city um, because I actually went on a trip and then I came back, I came out here and then it was starting to hit here. And so my friends and I decided that we were already going to start social distancing. So I've actually been doing this for eight weeks. I mean, my friend is there and I think it's, I think it's really hard. I mean, the reality is I would say probably 
50% of the people I know who live in the city full time have gotten the virus. I mean, I can name 30 people. Oh, wow. And so I think it's it's scary to be there, but you know, it's it's about community too. And New York has always been a place of neighborhoods and communities and, you know, people who live in a certain neighborhood. I, I mean, when I lived downtown uh, on 9th Street, I mean, the stores were, that had been there had been there for 30 years. I mean, it's like I had moved in and out of that area a couple of times and all the stores were the same. The people were the same. There is that real sense of community in New York, which I think is, you know, good. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you for this particular episode, which is about sort of solitude and sociability and the, these two poles in, you know, the way people are dealing with with uh, the pandemic, but also in sort of American art. I mean, we talked to David Means about solitude in, in art and writing the first half of the show. And, you know, but with you and your work, there's a lot of romance in your work, obviously, but also you write a lot about friendship and the sociability of friendship. And I really love that section in, is there still sex in the city? When you assemble your friend group out there in the, in, in Sag Harbor near your house. And like, and you, you also had a memory. You talked about being in your forties and having a friend who's, who's at three, two other friends who lived on the same block, uh, like area in New York and everybody went over to each other's house. And that's true of sex in the city too. I mean, it's about friendship. Yes. New York is a place that people traditionally leave their small towns to go to the big city. And one of the reasons why they leave their small towns is they feel like they don't fit in. They feel like they're a little bit different. They have something different to offer. Um, you know, they have a different perspective. They have a different sexuality. And then they come to New York. It's that experience of like, oh my God, I'm not alone in the world. And here are other people who are like me. And so that, those bonds, those friendship bonds are really, you know, what get people through, you know, living in New York. I mean, in a lot of ways, those friendship bonds are more important than family bonds because, a lot of people have the experience of like, oh, I'm the one person in my family who's different and nobody else in my family understands like what I do. And um, and so that makes these friendships that much more important and stronger because they really are about these people understand each other and what they, you know, who they are and what they do. So when you think about literature about those kinds of communities, who are your favorites? Like, who are the most sociable writers in, in, in like, American literature? I was thinking about it. Like, I thought of Fitzgerald, you know. Uh, yeah, Fitzgerald. I mean, what I've always been driven to do is it's to write about society. You know, there's that old adage, there are only three literary topics, uh, war, family, and society. I ain't going to war. I ain't having kids. Okay, I'm sick to death of, like, everyone's got to be a freaking mother. So what's left? Society. And I have always been interested in people and the way people interact and power in these 
social structures. And we don't really write about that anymore. It's, it's like we don't, people don't write about that broad sweeping overall view, like, you know, Tolstoy. Everything that happens in Anna Karenina, like probably happened in real life. You know, Edith Wharton and Jane Austen, in a way, really, Chicklet is, those are all, in a sense, society novels. Um, you know, they're really, they're about women and, you know, the different ways that women can get ahead in society and what are their mating and, you know, dating options and economic options. Well, the other thing is, you know, movies are really good at that. And that's the thing that I thought of another American art form that was is about society. I mean, I watched recently Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which was a great social movie by Amy Heckerling was the director. It's really fantastic. I, I just thought one thing we should say is since we're talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High is, you know, your new book is set at a high school. Um, and uh, you know, sort of navigates that world in, in, a, in a very interesting and complicated way. Um, I wonder if you could talk about how you ended up deciding to write it and how you ended up writing with another writer on, on, on this, speaking of being sociable. That really came about um, because I did the Carrie Diaries in Summer in the City for my editor, Alessandra Balzar, who I love and I love working with her. Um, and so I had a contract for another book and it was like one of those things where I had the contract for, I don't know, it was like going on three years and then people are like, we need our book. And, I mean, it really came about brainstorming and batting around ideas and, you know, I'd read a lot of her authors and Katie Katugno is one of her authors and I love Katie's books. And so, you know, we would talk and then Alessandra got the idea of, hey, maybe you guys can write this book together. And it went really well and it was fun. It's a different kind of writing. We actually met up a couple times. You meet up a couple times for like three or four hours and, you know, talk about things and go over things. Yeah, so it's a lot like TV writing where, you know, you have an outline and then you split it up and somebody does this and somebody does that part. And, I, you know, it's always great to get other people's sort of perspective on things when you're writing, because usually when you're writing, it's only, you know, it's like you're the one who's, you've got to basically be the editor and everything else. And, you know, you've got to second guess yourself. Uh, so there's something good about working with someone else where you can bounce ideas and say, you know, this, yes, and what about this? So I really loved the book, um, which is this great kind of teenage Me Too story. And when you say you started writing it three years ago, that makes perfect sense. Um, that's about the time that the show started, actually, and our second episode was about the Weinstein allegations. And I was just kind of thinking about how this brings us full circle. And the book is this great story about a young woman named um, Marin, and she's battling to hold an, an, a teacher accountable after he hits on her. Uh, and I was wondering, would you read some of the book to us? I, I will. That night, I sit at my desk eating all the pink star starbursts out of a giant bag I picked up at CVS and staring at the blinking cursor on the screen of my laptop, 
trying with extremely limited success to put together a draft of this article about the new cafeteria menu. Normally, I really like writing for the Beacon, but now it feels all mixed up with what happened with Bex and all those afternoons we spent in the newspaper office supposedly having such a good time. I mean, we were having a good time. At least I was. But now... Also, damn if it isn't a tall order to make grilled chicken on top of limp romaine lettuce sound exciting and novel. Finally, I pushed my chair back from my desk, catching sight of myself in the mirror on the back of my closet door. My hair's gotten long, the ends still bearing traces of last summer's sun and lemon juice highlights. When I was little, I wanted to look like a mermaid. I remember how Chloe and I used to sleep in braids the night before a beach trip, then hole up in her bathroom or mine, slathering on self-tanner, spending way longer getting ready than we ever did messing around in the waves. All at once it occurs to me how much time I've wasted in my life trying to make it look like I haven't spent any time at all. I stand up and face myself full on in the mirror, taking in my cropped shirt and the sliver of belly that peeks out over my high-waisted jeans and wondering briefly what I'd think if I was a stranger and saw a picture of myself on Instagram. What would I say to Chloe about that girl's flat butt and smudgy mascara? Probably not, she looks smart and like a good friend. That's for sure. I glance over at the empty place on the carpet where Chloe sat the other night, our conversation replaying like some bad radio earworm inside my head. You're freaking out a disproportionate amount. I got so amped up at the thought of it. But what if she's right? I went to his house, I remind myself again. I reapplied my chapstick right there in front of, in the front seat. But was that an invitation? I didn't mean it that way. At least I don't think I did. But maybe we did just have bad communication. Then I remember it happened. I was there. God, it's like even I want to make myself doubt myself. How messed up is that? But there's so many unspoken rules for navigating high school, for navigating life maybe, that I can't help but try to figure out which one I broke to get myself into this situation. There are just so many rules for girls. I stretch my arms over my head and think again about what happened to Deanna at lunch today. The caught animal look in her eyes as DeGuardio called her out in front of everyone. The longer I think about it, the angrier I get. At DeGuardio, sure, but also at myself. I want to tell Deanna that I'm sorry for all the casually nasty, sexist stuff I've ever heard about her. For all the times I could have said, that's not funny, and didn't. I want to tell her how unfair the whole thing is. Like, every guy wants to hook up, but if you actually do hook up, you have to worry about this? I want to ask her if she also feels like there are all these guidelines we're supposed to be following in exchange for the alleged privilege of walking around this world as a teenage girl. Be flirty, but not too flirty. Be confident, but not aggressive. Be funny, but in a low-key, quiet way. Eat cheeseburgers, but don't get fat. Be chill, but don't lose control.
I feel like I could keep on going. Like a full list would cover one of those old-fashioned scrolls from cartoons about Santa Claus. I dig through my bag and unwrap another starburst, chewing thoughtfully for a moment before laying my hands back down on the keyboard. Rules for being a girl. I type frantically for the better part of an hour, my fingers flying over the keys and my tongue caught between my teeth. I'm just finishing up when Gracie knocks on the door. Are you going to come watch TV, she asks, leaning against the jam in her buffalo check pajama pants and fuzzy slippers. Dad's making popcorn. I, I, what? I feel wrung out like a washcloth. I glance at the clock in the corner of the screen, see that hours have passed, and it's the middle of the night, but to my day's surprise, it's barely nine o'clock. Um, sure. Okay, Gracie looks at me for another minute. Are you all right? I glance at my editorial back at my sister. I'm good, I tell her, smiling a little. And for the first time since that day in Bex's apartment, it actually feels like the truth. Thank you so much. And in that section, there's this reference to um, the principal at their school doing this totally awful and completely plausible thing to one of Marin's classmates, Deanna, who gets hauled up as an example of violating dress code. Yes. And, you know, it's sort of she's Hester Prynne, I felt like. Um that she she just gets you know held up and and everyone is invited to comment on her body and her clothes and all of the ways in which she has violated the rules and then um, Marin like in a very Carrie Bradshaw fashion is sitting there writing about this talking to herself and processing and I was just thinking about um, yeah that that kind of call to once again you're writing about a writer it's a young writer. Uh, who's trying to process this whole social dance of not only high school, but the way in which it subtly trains you in sexism and how to navigate it. Yes. I mean, it's like to me, one of the things that I think the book does really well, and of course this is, you know, thanks to Katie, working with Katie, because we really worked hard on these beats and showing like this is how it happens like in real life, you know, the pattern of Beck's and the reaction of different people, it, you know, it could, it could be a map, you know, it, it's really not very different from what happened with Harvey Weinstein, how you think maybe it's your fault. Maybe you didn't do the right thing. Uh, you know, maybe you let the person on and then the reaction of the, the principal when she tries to tell someone and then the way we see just the casual sexism of the school. And, you know, right up to Bex, the teacher, being vicious and going after her when things don't go his way. He tries to ruin her life. So it's like this is a pattern of behavior that repeats itself you know it's like a virus that replicates itself in all of these different situations you know it could be high school it can be in the workplace it could be you know at walmart it could be it's it's a pattern that perpetuates all kinds of inequalities and and insecurities in women yeah and i think um you know we there's a reference in that passage that you just read to Chloe, who is um, Marin's best friend, 
And then there's also Jacob, who, when the book begins, is her boyfriend. And both of those characters have very specific reactions to this information as well. And then sort of in response to what happens to her social world in the wake of her making allegations, she kind of assembles and you know, going back to our questions about sociability, she assembles an army of alternate uh, support. And they're not the people who she was friends with before. She makes this awesome feminist book club. She basically... I love that she reads, she reads Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist and s- says, I have an idea, which is, must be everyone's response to yes, exactly. my, one of my responses to reading that book. Um, and then there's this ton of references to all of these books I love. I felt like I was in book club with them. Um, oh, that's great. It was just, I mean, so they read, um, you know, for our listeners, this, it's, it's essentially, it's, I mean, it's a really fun book to read. It's also just a great reading list within itself because it's got we Should All Be Feminists and Margaret Atwood, um, The Handmaid's Tale, and this really varied community of teens reading those things together. Can you talk a little bit about um, friendship in that book club? I mean, for me, it feels like, you know, what happens to Marin like, spurs her on to, in a sense, like, find her true self and find her true people. And it really opens her mind. And I feel like, you know, reading the passages about the book club, it also helps the, you know, reader to kind of open their mind too. I mean, one of the, you know, things about society and being out in society is that then you have to also like deal with the rules that that society has established for itself. And as you're talking about, like the way that behavior of somebody like Harvey Weinstein replicates itself like a virus through society, that's because the society has that sort that uh, you know, patriarchal values hardwired into it, you know, and so, uh, you know, creating different friend groups like that is really interesting to me because that's a way of sort of creating a sub society that might be able to have different rules in the official public society that you have to be out in. Yes, exactly. Did you have friends like that in high schools? Like I had a like a friend group who were like the cool kids, but they, I wasn't really, I wanted to be in that group, right? I know. And I the truth in. comes out. The truth comes I, out. You know what? I mean, I, it's like, I identify so much with that. I had lots of friends, lots of like different friends. I was friends with lots of different groups. I mean, the truth is like, I don't know, like the cheerleaders and the jocks. I I didn't really want to hang out with them. They really weren't that interesting. And, but I, I had like tons of girlfriends and I was like the ringleader. I mean, I was always trying to, um, I mean, really, in a sense, get them to break the rules and... What a shocker. Wait a minute. I'm <laughs> really surprised by that. No, but I remember in high school, like, really, it really coming home, like, ah, uh, this heterosexual, you know, society thing. It's like, ugh, it's so, it's so basic and it's so, you know, not interesting, like... It just seems so hypocritical to me. That, I think, is what, you know, strikes one, is that you, you know, it's like you realize everyone's just, they're they're playing their role. And, you know, the older you get, I think the freer you feel not to have to play a specific role. I mean, in a sense, because you can't. But I think that teenagers, they're the most hyper aware of like tiny, tiny little status things. And, and, you know, it's, 
it's it's really the time when there's so much pressure to conform and fit into one of those cliques. Candace, I was reading you grew up in Glastonbury, Connecticut. I did. I was born in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Right? I spent my first several years there. It's a, a town I'm pretty, not super familiar with, but I mean, I was little, but I sort of, the milieu you're referring to, I can, it's familiar. My sense of it is a conservative, a fairly conservative place in many ways, the social things that you're describing. And, but I mean, it also, you're talking about people fitting into the roles, but a really cool thing about the book is that there are all of these characters who bust out of there. Yes, exactly. But you know, but there always are in every high school, you know, there always are those kids that they're a little bit weird. They don't fit into the category and she finds that group of people. And to me, it's like in a way, like people who come to New York, they're looking to find that group of people, you know, the people who maybe, they have the same sensibility, but they're not the, you know, the expected necessarily. I mean, to me, one of the, I mean, just, and this is just really getting off the topic of the book and, you know, sort of onto the idea of the pandemic. One of the things that's interesting is that more and more people are spending time alone. You know, I just, I see that with young people, younger people. It just seems like they're more like single people out there. And, you know, I think with technology, we may become in some ways, maybe a more physically solitary. I hope not. I hope uh, we'll all be able to go back to the exciting restaurant filled New York. I know that's I know. I, I mean, one thing that it might do is that it's like now so many people like one of the things that always surprises me is like, how much time people now spend watching TV. Uh, like 20 years ago, uh, 25 years I'm ago. I'm sorry, but we... you can't really complain about that when you've had one of the most <laughs> well, popular television programs of all time. <laughs> I know, but, I, but, I'm just, but I'm just saying that it's so interesting. People just, they all watch tons of TV. Whereas in the past in New York, nobody watched TV. Like when I was writing Sex in the City, I didn't even own a TV. I didn't, I only got a TV in 1998 to watch Sex in the City. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> because people in New York had such an active, their lives were like TV shows. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody felt like so many things could happen in one day. Um, and you know, restaurants in a sense were theater. You go, you see people you know, um, you know, anything could happen. That sense of excitement is the thing that I've always liked about your work and, and in all of your books. Uh, so, Candace, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. We really enjoyed it. And we'll encourage our uh, listeners and viewers to go pick up a copy of Rules for Being a Girl. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode was produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. My name is Jasmine Rollins, and I'm a student in Whitney Terrell's podcasting practicum at UMKC. This is our student choice episode, so I want to credit all my fellow students who worked on this episode and have been working on the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast all this semester. They are Summer Collins, Bethany Graham, Harmony Lassen, Jared McCormick, Gianna Miniacci, Eva June Narver, Abby Otang, Montana Patrick, 
Sophia Strait, and Kara Walters. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at Lit Hub's virtual book channel and at our own newly launched Fiction Nonfiction podcast YouTube channel. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading to you and your friends.